0: Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goal. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Preck. And today our guest is Cowboy Joe Marquez. And Cowboy Joe has been involved in numerous real estate development projects across the United States, ranging from turnkey subdivisions, multifamily, 5,000 bed crew lodges, gulffront condos, resorts, commercial buildings, mixed use, and marinas. So he has a plethora and a wide variety of knowledge and super informative for us today. And we're excited to have him here on the show. Joe, how are you doing? And welcome.
1: I'm doing well. And thank you for having me on here. Uh, I love doing these and hope I can add some value to your listeners.
0: So Joe, I have to first ask, how did you get the nickname of Cowboy Joe?
1: You know, I am still trying to figure that out. I don't know (laughs) why these people call me Cowboy Joe. Seriously, I was raised on a ranch and I pretty much I've worn boots since I was knee high to a grasshopper and pretty much I wear a hat everywhere. They just people would holler across the room when I'd be at big meetings. Hey, cowboy. And it just kind of stuck.
0: Oh, so can you also share a little bit more about your background and how you got started in real estate?
1: Well, I kind of did it backwards for most people. I started doing fix and flip, but it wasn't that challenging because growing up on the ranch, we were constantly improving the land and things like that. That's where my love for improving land came from. Then when I graduated from college, I worked on the road for an environmental remediation company. And again, that was fixing problems with the land. So that was my true love. And I got bored with fixing flips pretty quick, did it about two years and said, well, I'm just going to jump straight into land development. Well, I don't highly recommend that as a practice for most people, but if you've got a high tolerance for pain and ambiguity, then go for it because you do have long periods of time that you don't have cash flow and you have to make sure that you can cover yourself in that time frame. But it really comes from being raised on the ranch and having a love for land, and how can we improve it? And I tell people I don't really have artistic ability from the standpoint of taking a paintbrush and putting something on canvas or singing. You don't ever want to hear me do karaoke, but I do have artistic ability. I can walk onto a raw piece of land and can envision what best fits it, and then determine what is best for the surrounding area. And that's one of the keys on land development is not only what is needed, but what is wanted. And if you can put something on a piece of property that's both needed and wanted, you've pretty much got a sold out project. Now, you have to have both of them because if it's needed, but people don't want it. You're going to have difficulty dealing with it. And then if it's wanted, but not necessarily needed, then the demand may not be as high as well. So one of the keys in land development is making sure that it's something that's both wanted and needed.
0: So when you're looking at land, then how do you determine what's wanted and what's needed?
1: And and a lot of that's dealing with the local zoning boards and land planners for whether, whether you're in the county or city, whatever municipality is governing that project. See what is already in the area. See what they envision, what they look for, and then get out into the surrounding area and just talk to people. Really, it all it comes down to relationships. The more relationships you can build, the better feel you get for what everybody wants. And then you figure out what works best for everybody involved. I really do not participate in any projects anymore that are not a win-win-win deal. If somebody's got to lose on a project, it's not worth me being in. It has to be a win for everybody that's involved.
0: So when you decided to jump into the land development, and then I think you mentioned that you need to have a high tolerance for pain since you're not really getting a lot of cash flow in the very beginning, like what helps you continue to focus on that land development side of things even as you're not making the cash flow things are a little bit slower to start up and before things start kicking off before you actually have to maybe turn a different way or pivot to something else what keeps you driving
1: well there's several factors in that one is because it is truly something i love to do and you know you've probably heard the cliche do something you love to do and the money will follow well as long as you know your numbers, that is a very true statement. If there's a demand for what you love to do and you can figure out how to monetize it, that is the best way to live. And I love learning and teaching. That's why I love being on these podcasts is because I get to help other people dodge some of the pitfalls that I've had. And then even if they do hit a pitfall, give them options on how to navigate that and get out of it. But the biggest thing is I truly love taking raw land and turn it into a work of art. It's not really work for me. It's something I love to do.
0: Not everybody has a similar type of background growing up in the ranch, so you love the land and it was easy for you to fall into and find your passion and what you love to do within real estate as you're helping and you're working with people to try to figure out what they're passionate about and what things that they love to do and figure that side of things out, there's so many different things that are available within real estate. How do you kind of determine what is your specialty or what are some of the things that you would really enjoy doing?
1: Well, and it again, like if somebody loves swinging a hammer and doing the fix and flips, then that's excellent. They may want to do the vertical build-out on development. They may be able to tolerate the pain of going through entitlement and everything else on the land to be able to get to the vertical build-out part. And then the other thing is land development is truly the highest dollar amount that you can make as far as amount of effort. I can do one development project every two years and make as much money as somebody that's done. 50 to 60 fix and flips in that same time period. And there's a whole lot more work to do 50 to 60 fix and flips versus one project. So that's the biggest factor is just the sheer size and the volume is you're making more money with less effort. It is a unique skill set, but it's something that everybody can learn. And it's literally a step by step process. If you've got the knowledge to be able to do fix and flips and you know you've got great planning skills and can do it, all it is is scaling that up another notch.
0: And for the deals that you typically work on also, and when you're working with other people, one of the things that you talk about too is like the different capital structures and how best to utilize the equity debt and different types of reserves. How do you find the balance of it? And and how do you determine from deal to deal? What is the best type of capital structure for this particular deal?
1: A great question. And that's really, you know, a little bit about my story, but in 08, 09, I went beyond completely broke. I went way below zero. And it was all because I did not understand capital structures. I was taught, like most of us back then, money sitting in a check account was dead money. You had to have it to work. Basically, borrow out equity out of one project and roll it into another project. You need to be 100% capitalized at all times. And when the market turned. That was the difference between the investors that went broke and the investors that started scooping up all the deals that were there because the ones of us that were going broke were selling them on fire sale. Well, capital structure is composed of three components. You have the equity side, you have the debt side, then you have the reserve side. Well, the debt side is the part that increases the risk of any underlying investment. And every investment has inherent risk. The debt actually modifies that. The equity gives you a little bit of a safety factor. It like lifts the burden of the debt. It gives you other partners to help you pick up that weight versus you carrying it alone. And there's several bank metrics that you use. One is DCR, or now they've added another one. There's DSCR, which is just debt service cover ratio. That's basically how much revenue above your actually debt service are you making. And most banks want to see a 1.2 or better. And then the other ratio that you want to watch is the break-even ratio. Now, those two numbers are measuring close to the same thing, but they're measured slightly different. You want to make both numbers are within range. The break-even ratio is how much can your revenue fall and you still be able to cover the debt. And most banks want to see a break-even ratio on most projects of 80% or lower. And that basically means that your revenue can drop 20% and you're still able to cover that debt. And then the other key component is reserves. And this was one thing that I was taught different that lines of credit were reserves. Lines of credit are not reserves. I had a half a million dollars in lines of credit open, ready to be used in two different banks called me up and said, we're closing your lines of credit. And I'm like, why? I've paid every bill on time. My credit score is perfect. And you thought, like, well, we're, we're not sure about the market stability. And we're just not happy with the current economic environment. We're closing them. Well, if you read the fine print, they can close them for any reason at any time, regardless of what agreement you've got in place. So I went from thinking I had half a million dollars to work with to nothing, because like we were taught. Cash gets put to work. It's useless. But what they fail to ignore is the opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is what it costs you if you don't have available capital to be able to invest in additional opportunities. And opportunities cost is huge. That's one reason I use as many equity partners as I do. Even if I've got money to make a project work, I will use equity partners because I can leave my money there for to be able to qualify and take advantage of other opportunities. To give you an example, let's say that you've got $100,000 to work with and you can do half million dollar project with that $100,000. Whereas if you bring in an equity partner for that and keep your $100,000 for qualifying for other projects, let's say you have to give 30% of that project to the equity partner, but you're able to start five more projects keeping your 100000 intact, now you've got $2.5 million worth of projects and you've got 70% of that $2.5 million versus 100% of one $500,000 project.
0: We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. So when you're looking at... You said back in 2008, 2009, because you didn't understand the capital structures and how it worked and how it would impact you, how did you start to learn... What was going to work for your particular situation going forward and how were you going to apply it as you looked at new investments and how did you start building yourself from the ground back up?
1: Okay. Well, prior to 08, 09, I had taken some introductory real estate courses, but pretty much 90 plus percent of what I learned was through trial and error on my own. And that gets very expensive. So after 0809, I basically, I picked myself up. Us cowboys are pretty dense. Uh, it takes a lot to beat us down. I make the joke that dictionary I learned out of the pages quit and can't were ripped out. So I really never learned those definitions started back to doing the exact same thing that I made multi-millions of dollars with, but couldn't go anywhere. I was like beating my head against the glass ceiling and going backwards. That was when I learned the importance of mindset and ended up with a human performance and human behavior expert as one of my mentors working on the mindset. I really don't like using the term mindset because it's more heart It's both the heart and brain together because you can believe it up here, but until you get it in your heart, it doesn't go anywhere. So started working with that. Also found a mentor on Finance and capital structures. He's probably well, I know he's the most heart-centered brain that I know on the face there. There may be someone out there a better, but George Antone knows more about finance and capital structures than any other human being I know. And start was fortunate to be able to become part of his inner circle and learn with him. And the power just his students have had conversations with Robert Kiyosaki's guys, and they were like, wow, we never looked at it that way. So that's the power of the education. You're able to short circuit all those pitfalls that you're going to hit on your own, learn through trial and error. People are like, well, that's expensive. Well, I can tell you, I've been through both. And losing $50 million, losing it through trial and error versus spending $50,000 to learn it right the first time, there's a slight difference in them two numbers. There's like a whole nother three, four zeros difference. So that's the power of actually getting quality mentors and getting education. And on that, it doesn't matter what mentor you pick, make sure you pick ones that have done it. Because you've got a lot of people out there that have read a book and they try to teach it, like college professor trying to economics and business that has never run a business. They don't understand what can happen from a standpoint of when this happens versus this, what are your options? So make sure that when you do get mentors, that you get people that have done it and that align with what you're wanting to accomplish in life.
0: So going back to the capital structure side of things as well, when people think about debt and equity back in 2008, 2009, a lot of times, you know, there was a lot of Over leveraging. So, how did you find the balance between, or what worked for you when you're looking for the balance between equity and the debt structure of the side of things? And then the other piece I kind of want to talk about and touch on afterwards is a little bit as the reserve side as well.
1: Okay. And that was the metrics uh, mentioned earlier uh, DCR and BER. Those are the two metrics that you use to determine the balance because each investment is different, each investment can only carry a certain amount of weight and the weight is the debt. So what you do is you figure out how much can that investment safely carry debt-wise and then fill in the rest with equity. The equity is what helps you lift the debt. And then a lot of people will for the lowest interest rate. And that's not how you determine the risk on debt. Risk on debt is what's called the loan constant. The loan constant is nothing but the total of both principal and interest that you're going to pay in a year. That's And one reason, you know, you see banks push 15-year mortgages and they'll give you a half a percent less interest. But the reason they do that is because that's actually a safer loan for them because it has a higher loan constant. The higher the loan constant as a bank, the better for the bank because that makes them safer. But you as an investor the higher the loan constant, the more risk you're taking on because that's an obligation to pay. To Whereas if you pay that half a percent more in interest for a 30-year loan, your obligation is less. But that doesn't mean you can't pay more toward it and pay it off faster and still not pay any more than you would have on the 15-year mortgage. You just got a much safer vehicle that way. And one of the
0: things you had said earlier, too, was the lines of credits that you had open were not considered as reserves. So best practice and, you know, in order to mitigate a lot of the risks in deals and what people are looking for, what's a typical reserves that people should look at or at least be aware of?
1: Well, the biggest thing is making sure they're liquid. Cash in checking accounts are liquid. I prefer, and again, part of what I teach is asset protection, and that's both holding investments and where to put liquid reserves. I teach about using complex trust for holding assets and also mitigating taxes. And then also using, and people have heard the term infinite banking. The problem with that is there's a lot of people out there that don't truly understand it, and they can put it in the wrong structured insurance product. To where, yeah, you've got insurance, but you're not increasing the cash value at a rapid enough rate to truly be effective as a bank. But properly structured, you can have insurance products that you can get between 70 and 80 percent of your cash that you've put into them. If you're funding them up front, you can do it immediately within 30 business days. Basically, as soon as the check's cleared and they've got everything set up, you can start borrowing against that cash value. And what that does is that gets you money working in two places at once because you've got the underlying asset, the insurance policy, that's continuing to grow. You're not affecting that growth by borrowing against it because you're not borrowing your money. You're actually borrowing against the death benefit. The insurance is loaning you money because one thing they know is nobody's getting out of this world alive. So you're going to eventually pay that loan back one way or the other. And they just take it out of the death benefit and your beneficiaries get the rest. So cash value and insurance policies are great liquid reserves. You just leave the money in there and you can borrow it. You don't have to have a reason for it. You just tell them, okay, I want this. And typically it takes less than three business days to initiate a policy loan. Then you've got that money to be able to cover any emergency that you need. And typically on reserves, if it's a really good cash flowing property, you may can get down to a three-month reserve, but take a good portion of the money that you're making on the investment and put it toward reserves versus distributing to investors and partners Till you've got at least a six-month reserve. And to truly be safe, you want to get closer to a year reserve. And that's across all your assets. That's when you're pretty close to bulletproof.
0: And when you talk about the reserves for a year to cover all of your assets, are you also saying that would be best put into an uh, infinite banking type of strategy or keep it liquid or a portion of it in both places?
1: Well, you want to keep some cash. I and mean, you just get something to smoke out. But I keep probably 85% of my reserves in properly structured insurance products. And again, I'm emphasizing properly structured, I'll say it 100,000 times, because that is the key to it all. There's people who will try to sell you something that they know infinite banking, but if it's not properly structured, it's going to hurt you in the long run.
0: What would happen in that case if you had invested in infinite banking product that you thought was going to work the way you thought it was going to work, but the person didn't really understand the full structure, what would typically happen in that case down the road?
1: Well, you won't have the cash value to borrow against. You'll go 10 years and you'll have put in hundreds of thousands of dollars and may only have twenty to $30,000 in cash value to borrow against. And again, it's five to 10 years down the road versus properly structured then you start getting immediate cash value. You don't have as high of a death benefit. And that's why when you talk to somebody, you figure out what is your specific outcome for that vehicle, because this is another investment. This is working your money smart. This is getting your money working in multiple places at one time. That's why I like keeping my reserves there, because while they're sitting there, they're working much harder than they would as a checking account, and I still have the opportunity Availability there. If something happens, I can hit that money and it's there. I can show that I've got that available. So, but it is working versus sitting in a checking account. It's not really doing anything but providing you security and opportunity costs, which both of them are very important. But why not just go ahead and making some extra on the side as well?
0: So Joe, how has real estate investing impacted your life?
1: It's pretty much made me psychologically unemployable. (laughs) I haven't had a job for over 30 years. And I don't know if anybody could tolerate me working for them anymore. So,
0: And Joe, what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started?
1: Uh, The biggest thing is the capital structures. If I had known the capital structures before oh eight oh nine, then I'd have positioned things in a much better place. Now I don't regret what happened oh eight oh nine because it has what made me into the person that I am today. It's what's given me the drive to learn all of these tools and strategies. And it's what allows me to help my students grow and learn these to where they don't have to learn it the hard way.
0: And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing?
1: Not quitting and consistency. Consistency is the entire key to everything. It picks something and just keep doing it day in, day out. I think everybody's seen the memes on Facebook. The little guy that's digging the tunnel, he stops a foot from the diamonds and then the other guy keeps going and he doesn't stop. That's the whole key. That's truly the only measure of success there is. Success and failure are both the same thing. They're nothing but feedback. Take the feedback, keep taking action, and stay consistent. The only way you lose is if you quit.
0: Joe, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing?
1: Probably the easiest way is www.com. Cowboyjoe.me. That's my website. Again, that's www.cowboyjoe.me. And it's got all of my events pages, different things. I've got a boot camp coming up that will be probably after this podcast airs, but I plan on doing at least three of those a year that where I teach the asset protection and infinite banking strategies together. To create your foundation. And then we also do a deep dive on mindset. And the reason we call it a boot camp is it's not a seminar, there's interactive exercises and all you will start taking action. Because that's one thing that I will also talk about till the day I die. Knowledge is not power, applied knowledge is power. And the only way you can apply knowledge is by taking action.
0: Joe, thank you so much for all of your time on the show today. I really appreciate everything that you shared with us.
1: It's my pleasure and I hope I've added value to your listeners and truly enjoy doing it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our podcast today brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We'd really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook. How did they do it real estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the Contact Us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.